And we've made it. This is the final episode of this Indie Author Spotlight with J.C. Breen, who was gracious enough to allow me to read a sample of her book, Flight from Fernalee. Hope you guys have enjoyed this. This is just a, a fun adventure story. And if you can't get enough of it, good news. You can check out J.C. at jcbreen.blogspot.com. And you can, and the link is down below. And you can read more of the book there on her blog. Or you can go to Amazon or Smashwords and read it there. Which is a great way to support J.C. She's, she's an independent author. She's an independent author, and if you've ever tried online content creation, you know that it can be a difficult thing to do, especially when you're just getting started. So, so make sure to go over there, show her some support, let her know that you heard about her on Another World Audiobooks, and uh, yeah, enjoy this final part of the sample of Flight from Fernalee. Chapter 5 But what of Joe? His journey had been very different, but no less tiring, squashed in the back of a car between two silent, grim-faced men with huge, bolder shoulders. These men, along with the drivers of each car and their boss, Mordaunt, who had a back seat all to himself in the first, more luxurious limo, were the only ones not to go racing after Miles and Alice. They seemed to be sitting in the stationary vehicles for ages, while other black-coated men were frantically raking through the woodland half a mile away before setting fire to it. The idea had originally been to smoke the children out into the open, but as with all bad intentions, theirs too went catastrophically wrong when the wood, dried after a couple of weeks of good weather, burst into flames, threatening to turn the entire landscape into a tinderbox. Much to the disappointment of certain pupils, the fire brigade was called before the flames reached the school, by which time the search for Miles and Alice had been abandoned. But not before two of the men had their max catch fire, sending them hopping and howling back to the limos. After witnessing this fiasco, Mordaunt emerged from the comfy back seat, his face the color of rotting beetroot and his Gucci-clad feet stamping with frustration. "'You idiots!' he railed. "'We need those kids alive! Ningumpoops! You couldn't organize a brew-up at a vicar's tea party!' "'Sorry, Mordaunt,' said Skinner, cringing under the boss's furious abuse. "'We couldn't find them anywhere!' Griswold tried to lighten the mood. "'Well, you have to look on the bright side,' he quipped. They probably dying quite horribly. Yeah, said Craven, and chuckled at the thought. In response, Mordon merely glared at his idiot henchman. Get back in the car, you thickos. We'd better get this kid to babble before he disappears as well. That's if you can handle him all by yourselves, he added, sarcasm spewing from his mouth. He's gone to sleep, said Skinner, as he climbed into the seat facing Joe. Far from sleeping, though, Joe had closed his eyes to shut out the horror of it all. Well, that should make your job a bit easier, shouldn't it? With that final jibe, Mordaunt got back in his car and slammed the door. The limousine set off, engines purring up the road, past the smoking woodland, and out into open country. Joe gazed out of the window as they climbed steadily upwards onto the moors, which were particularly beautiful at this time of year, with the heather coming into bud and the sun casting a golden glow onto the peaks. But as they continued the journey, the landscape became bleak and blackened by peat, a desolate scene, relieved only by coarse, scrubby tufts of lifeless reeds and bracken. If this were not enough to make Joe's heart sink, then the sight awaiting him would send it plunging to his trainers. The limo turned onto a steep, narrow track, and the engine ground into second gear as a small copse of tall, dense pine trees came into view, hiding the horror beyond. It was only once they'd driven through the trees that Joe had his first glimpse of the Babel Retreat, a large fortress dark and gloomy, skulking at the bottom of the valley in the middle of dark, swirling water. The nearer it loomed, the more hideous it appeared, its outer walls impossibly high, and laced with broken glass and vicious razor wire. Only the moorland springs gave any hint of life, and these bubbled merrily downwards from the hills before converging into the lake. 
This treacherous water served two purposes. Firstly, it formed a moat around the building, making it impossible for unwelcome visitors to reach, and secondly, it provided a constant water supply through a series of aqueducts leading into the cellars. On their approach, Joe heard an ominous creak as a large drawbridge was dropped, allowing the limos to cross the moat, and two enormous iron gates opened to reveal a large cobbled courtyard. Here, several women stood, waiting, all dressed in long robes of purple and crimson, while their heads were covered with crisp white veils and weird headdresses, which reminded Joe of the paper aeroplanes he sometimes made in class. The tallest of these women stepped forward to greet Mordaunt, as he and the rest of his men left the comfort of their limousines, dragging Joe out with him, grabbing the boy by the scruff of his neck, Skinner rasped in his ear. "'No, mind your manners, you little scumbag!' That lady there is Sister Prism, head of this joint, and your boss from now on. Sister's her title, so remember to use it. Mr. Mordaunt, how nice to see you again. I trust you are well, said the woman. Although her words were welcoming, there was no warmth behind them. This isn't a social call, he replied gruffly. I brought you another brat for safekeeping. Unceremoniously, he shoved Joe towards a stern-looking woman, who looked the small boy up and down with an icy gaze. He might just as well have been a maggot for all he mattered. "'Stand up straight, boy,' rapped Mordaunt. "'This nice lady is going to look after you now, but she doesn't stand no nonsense, so if I were you, I'd do as I was told.' Sister Prism continued to look at the child, her nose twitching like she had a bad smell under it. "'What's its name?' she asked without much interest. Of course, to Mordaunt, such details were irrelevant— Nevertheless, he nudged Joe with his elbow. Tell Sister Prism your name, brat. Slowly, Joe glanced up into the woman's cold, dead eyes. Well? said Prism menacingly. Joe was not going to be intimidated. Even if he were afraid of this tall, pointy-nosed lady with her alabaster skin, he'd rather die than show it. Resolutely, he glared back at her, refusing to answer. Sister Prism was not accustomed to people defying her, especially rude young boys. "'Tell me your name, boy,' she warned. "'Otherwise I might think you are insolent, "'and insolent children have to be dealt with "'in a very uncomfortable way.' "'I think he's shy,' suggested Skinner. "'He's not said a word all the way here.' "'Or perhaps he's dumb,' said Sister Prism. "'Which would be a pitiful waste of a tongue. "'Perhaps we should pluck it out "'and give it to someone who will make good use of it, "'like my cat, for instance.' She chuckled unpleasantly, and her finely chiseled nose began to wrinkle again. Wisteria, she called. Take this, this person to the dormitory. Her eyes fixed on Joe with steely determination. I'll deal with you later. As Wisteria, a small, plump woman, led Joe away, Mordaunt began to brief his superior. As you're no doubt aware, this boy is quite important to us. It seems his parents are not cooperating quite as freely as they should— and, well, it may be necessary to exert some extra pressure. I'm sure you understand. Perfectly, Mr. Mordaunt, perfectly. Be assured you can safely leave the little brute with me. No doubt Mummy and Daddy will be delighted to know what an excellent education their offspring is receiving. Mordaunt took her hand and kissed it, suddenly oozing smile. In fact, he was already deeply impressed by this woman whose nastiness matched his own. I'm sure we can count on you, Sister Prism, or may I be so cool as to call you Prissy. His gallantry was met by Prism's usual chilliness, but the merest hint of pink on her otherwise colourless features betrayed her pleasure. 
Perhaps one day, she replied. Mordon smirked, confident of his charm, and, with a nod of his head, he returned to his car. All be in touch, he leered, and the convoy sped away into the gloom. Meanwhile, Joe was being dragged along by Wisteria and two other women through an oak door up a spiral staircase which seemed to go on forever. At last, they reached a long corridor with highly polished floors and several doors. Here we are, said Wisteria, and ushered the boy into a dormitory, where he'd been locked up for the night, a dingy, dank place with walls a horrible shade of bile green. Lining each side of the room were lumpy-looking beds with rusty iron bedsteads and thin, grey, itchy-looking blankets. Apart from the lamp Sister Wisteria was carrying, there didn't seem to be any lights, but at least his guide was a little more forthcoming than Prism. Seeing as it's your first night, I'll leave this lamp for a while, she said. Just until you get your bearings. Besides, she added, once the sun goes down, it's very creepy in here. They say it's haunted by a wicked baron who roams about searching for children to pull their toes and bite their noses. Joe's eyes grew like saucers. But I wouldn't worry if I were you, said Wisteria cheerily. It's probably just a story, pleasant dreams. Oh, and there's some food on the table if you're hungry. With that, she disappeared, leaving Joe alone with a ghost. He ran to the door, but it was locked. His first instinct was to scream to be let out, yet something told him Sister Prism would be pleased if he did that. Instead, he shook himself and marched determinedly to the table. Come on, Joe, he said to himself. Let's see what there is to eat. Very little as it happened. A few slices of dry, moldy bread, which curled up at the corners, four pieces of luncheon meat going green at the edges, and a bowl of cold tapioca, which reminded Joe of frog spawn. There was also a bottle of flat lemonade and a plastic cup. Hungry as he was, Joe hardly enjoyed his supper, although he tried, with great difficulty, to swallow some of it. Got to keep your strength up, he chided himself, echoing his mother's advice, but the very thought of her caused a huge lump in his throat, and he began to snivel. I wonder where she and Dad are, he murmured sadly. But just before the inevitable tears began to roll, he heard a scuttling noise from one corner of the room, and he breathed in sharply. Who's there? He rasped. No answer. Perhaps it's the ghost, he thought, and imagined he could see a shadowy shape out of the corner of his eye. Who are you? Yelled Joe. Come out and let me see you. But still, there was no answer. Finally, after a long silence, the ghost started scuttling again, and this time there was a low wooing noise to go with it. Scared as he was, Joe got angry. He'd had such a horrid time that day, and he was so tired and so miserable Nothing could make matters worse, not even a blood-sucking baron. "'You can't frighten me!' cried Joe defiantly. "'Come out and show yourself, and if you don't, it's cause you're a coward, and I'm not scared at anything cowards can do, so there!' Again there was silence. "'It's gone away,' Joe said to himself, allowing himself a sliver of triumph. Yet he'd hardly begun to breathe again when— "'Aah!' The ghost leapt out from under a nearby bed, shrieking and howling, and it grabbed Joe from behind. Poor Joe. All his courage deserted him, and he screamed at the top of his voice. Get off! He yelled hysterically, kicking and struggling until, with superhuman effort, he managed to dislodge the creature from his back. Gasping from the struggle, Joe looked down to where his tormentor lay on the floor, helpless with laughter. It was a black boy, about his own age, with mischievous eyes, and the widest smile Joe had ever seen. That wasn't funny, Joe shouted. He was torn between anger at the boy's trick and relief that he wasn't the evil baron. 
Yes, it was, replied the boy, still hooting with mirth. You were scared so well. No, I wasn't, Joe protested. Of course you were, came the reply. You thought I was a ghost. Satisfied his ruse had had the desired effect, the boy stopped laughing and jumped to his feet. My name's Odie, short for Otis Rudy Rogers, but I'm Odie to my friends and very pleased to make your acquaintance. What's your name? Joe? Welcome to Babel, Joe. Not that you want to be here, mine, but for my own selfish reasons, I'm glad you came, said Odie. It's pretty miserable here on your own, I can tell you. Who are those women? asked Joe. Oh, them, snorted Odie. Ninjas, they're called. Supposed to be some kind of religious order, but don't let that fool you. Holy, they ain't. Are we prisoners here? Well, that's a matter of opinion, said Odie. Depending on whether you try to escape or not. Have you? Joe wondered. Odie opened his mouth wide in mock astonishment at such a question. Have you seen the moat down there? Trust me, it's a million miles deep, and if it doesn't drown you, it's probably got piranha fish in it or something. Besides, the walls in here are like three miles thick, almost as thick as your head if you think you can get out of Babel. How long have you been here? was Joe's next question. About two weeks. Some men turned up at our house and took away my folks. Then they brought me here. Don't ask me why. That's the same that happened to me, exclaimed Joe. I don't know what's happened to my parents either. Realizing he was in danger of crying, he quickly added, What is this place anyway? And wiped his nose with his sleeve. Odie shrugged. It's some kind of weird type non-place, he said unhelpfully. Though they don't seem much like nuns to me. He lowered his voice mysteriously. And you should see what they get up to at night. What? asked Joe, intrigued. Odie smiled and tapped the tip of his nose with his finger. Stick with me and you'll soon find out, he replied. I know lots of secrets and I might just share them with you, but only if you show me respect, mind. Respect? At this, he raised a fist, and Joe ducked instinctively, afraid Odie was going to hit him. Instead, his new friend laughed, grabbed hold of Joe's hand, coaxed it into a fist to match his own, and they pressed knuckles. My man, said Odie. My man, replied Joe. My man, repeated Odie, and there was a few ouches as they kept hitting each other. Hey, I said respect, man, and they both laughed. Now they had been properly introduced, the boy sat on one of the beds and tried to make sense of what was happening. What do you think they want with us? said Joe. We're just kids. Your guess is as good as mine, said Odie. But it might have something to do with the government and the election and that. Dad was really horrified at some new guys getting loads of votes. He said it must have been rigged, and if you got to be the main man, we'd all be in trouble. I don't understand about politics, said Joe. My parents never talk about things like that. They probably do, Odie replied. Usually when there's something good on telly and they've got people round and they all start yakking so I can't hear it. What did your dad do? asked Joe. Odie thought for a moment. Something with computers? came the reply. Software programming or some kind of techno stuff? I don't know. What about yours? He teaches science, Joe said. Maybe he's a spy, said Odie. Maybe our mums and dads have been plotting to assassinate the prime minister or something and that's why they disappeared. Joe didn't think that was likely. No, he said. My dad goes shopping and weeds the garden and cleans the car. Spies don't do things like that. That's all you know, said Odie. Maybe he isn't shopping. 
Maybe it's a secret assignment, and he's passing on microfilm to other spies at the checkout. There was a pause while Joe considered this. He couldn't imagine the co-op's plump, jolly checkout lady being a spy. Nah, he replied. He only goes when we've run out of milk. Talking of milk, are you hungry? asked Odie. Well, I had some bread just now. You didn't eat that garbage, did you? Stick with me, and you're in for a feast. Odie ran to the large stone fireplace in the dormitory, and beckoned Joe to follow him. Just above the mantelpiece was a stone carving of a gargoyle with huge poppy eyes and a tongue protruding from its mouth, which Odie grabbed and pressed upwards. This acted as a lever, triggering a mechanism and causing the floor of the fireplace to grind open slowly, revealing stone steps spiraling downwards. With a shout of triumph, Odie punched the air and cried, I've not been in here for two weeks without finding out a few things. I leant against it by accident and it just swung open. Not even Prism knows it's here. Follow me. And he began to disappear from view. Last one there gets soggy mashed potatoes. The steps seemed to go on forever, and Joe found it impossible to keep up with Odie and upright at the same time. The stone spirals were narrow and uneven, and Joe was terrified in case he slipped. It was indeed a perilous descent, but at last he reached the bottom safely to find Odie waiting by a huge oak door. After making sure the coast was clear, Odie and Joe pushed their way into a large old-fashioned kitchen. It had a stone flag floor, a huge sink made out of slate, and a polished lead cooking range, and an enormous wooden table, so old its surface had been worn down by all the years of scrubbing. The lot is over there, whispered Odie. What if someone comes in? asked Joe nervously. Oh, they won't, replied Odie, with a wouldn't you like to know, but I'm not going to tell you tone of voice. They'll be far too busy. He winked at Joe, who was actually dying to find out about this mysterious activity, but equally determined not to ask. In his experience, people never told him anything he really wanted to know, and yet always insisting on telling him the things he found boring. His solution was to simply pretend he wasn't interested in anything ever, and sure enough, someone would spill the beans if only to get a reaction. Besides, at that point he was far more concerned with his rumbling stomach, and Odie, true to his word, had led them to a feast. The larder shells were simply groaning with grub, chicken pieces and barbecue sauce, sausage rolls, crisps, savory biscuits and cheese, fresh rolls and jam, pies and pastries, and jellies galore. For the next ten minutes, the boys hardly spoke as they crammed the food into their hungry mouths. Gorging on a chocolate muffin, Joe looked around him and noticed, without much interest, an amazingly large pile of tea. Lemon tea, china tea, herbal tea, fruity tea, ordinary tea. Every type of tea known to man seemed to be stashed in the larder. That's Sister Prism's little weakness, explained Odie, following Joe's gaze. You never see her without a cup and saucer in her hand. She's the original tea bag. And the boys laughed again, their full stomachs giving them a feeling of contentment, until, out of the blue, they heard a blood-curdling sound, a sound so eerie and unearthly that it almost froze their eyeballs. It was a deep, harsh, growling sound that seemed to be coming from under the earth like a grumbling volcano. The boys stood silently, rigid with terror. "'What was that?' croaked Joe feebly. "'I don't know,' replied Odie. "'All I know is I don't think I want to know, but it sure sounds nasty.' They listened carefully for a moment, then decided it was probably a creaky door before returning to the more serious business of the jellies. Finally, when they'd eaten their fill and their faces were smeared with all the colours of the rainbow, Odie nudged Joe and led him towards the hall outside. "'You're going to see something really cool now,' he promised. "'Follow me.' "'Come on, Mysteria,' a lady called. 
It's time for our devotions. The two children peered around the corner until sure the coast was clear. Where to now? Joe asked. Odie smiled mischievously. Devotions, he replied. Just follow me. He led the way to a small back staircase, and before ascending, turned towards Joe with a finger on his lips. Not a sound, he whispered, or we're dead meat. As they climbed, they heard singing, not pleasant, tuneful singing, but a sort of whiny, eerie chant, which made Joe's skin crawl. He wished they could return to the dormitory. Are you sure this is a good idea? said Joe weakly. It'll be wicked, you'll see, replied Odie cheerfully. By now, they'd reached the enormous oak door. Odie pushed it open and began to creep through, beckoning for Joe to follow him into a large room with a floor so highly polished they could almost see their faces in it. The room was as big as a school gymnasium with huge, stained-glass windows reflecting light from sparkling chandeliers. But even these paled next to the breathtaking object standing majestically at the far end of the hall. With their eyes adjusted to the brightness, the boys saw an ornate golden pole with a head of a strange beast perched on top. It must have been at least twelve feet high, reaching almost to the rafters, dominating everything else in the room. Joe rubbed his eyes and stared at the symbol, trying to make out what it was. To his tired eyes, it looked like a dragon with enormous teeth and ruby-colored eyes and horns encrusted with exquisite gems of every hue, including diamonds so pure that every facet sparkled with pride. The effect was awesome. So awesome, in fact, Joe and Odie were almost oblivious to the strange chanting until the main doors of the hall began to open. Quick! cried Odie. Behind the curtain! It wasn't really a curtain, but a richly embroidered tapestry which covered the walls. Not that the boys cared what it was, as they skated across the mirror of a floor and dived for cover. The tapestry smelled musty, and its fibers almost made them sneeze, but at least it gave them somewhere to hide. Being so old, it had holes through which its visitors could view proceedings. They'd hidden in the nick of time. Just as Joe's trainers disappeared from view, about seventy women entered in their purple robes, carrying long staffs before them. One by one, they approached the golden pole with a three-horned dragon, raised their hands above their heads, and with clenched fists, clicked both wrists together by way of a salute. The last to do so was Sister Prism, who then clapped her hands as a signal for the chanting to stop, opened her arms wide, and began to address the image. O oh, mighty Babel, we come to offer our praise. Grant us power for the task set before us. Power be upon us, murmured the rest of the women. Sister Prism turned to the congregation and announced, let our devotions begin. Suddenly, the whole atmosphere changed from one of hushed reverence to frenetic energy. Most of the nunjas formed a circle, which two of them entered. This couple bowed to each other, held up their staves in a ritualistic salute, and then, accompanied by ear-splitting shrieks, threw themselves into a frenzied bout of gravity-defying leaps, kicks, and parries, using their staffs, their agility, and even their feet to gain an advantage over their partner. It was a mesmerizing display both women swirling and somersaulting with grace. Even their frumpy frocks seemed elegant, transformed to the exotic robes of samurai warriors. Wow! exclaimed Joe. They're like ninjas! whispered Joe. That's right, Odie replied. Ninja nuns! Nunjas! Just look at them go! And he chuckled to himself, enjoying the display. Joe, however, felt more fear than at any time since his capture. It wasn't so much the kung fu that disturbed him, Although shrieking women hurling themselves around was scary enough, no, it was the image of the dragon. After some minutes had passed, Sister Prism herself took the floor, and her fellow nunjas stopped their own activities to watch in awed silence. This woman was incredible, kicking, swirling, leaping, pirouetting in mid-air, all the while using her staff to propel her upwards, even higher, almost to the rafters. 
She was halfway through a stunning pirouette when Odie bloated from his recent gorging in the larder, burped loudly. This caused Sister Prism to lose concentration so that, instead of achieving the graceful maneuver intended, she landed clumsily and painfully on her bottom. Who did that? she yelled angrily. Joe put his hand over his mouth, horrified, as he too felt a huge bubble of air rising remorselessly upwards from his belly. But nothing could muffle the sound of the enormous burp which followed. Sister Prism ripped the tapestry open and dragged the boys out, her mouth frothing with rage. She picked up a staff and held it poised above her head, ready to strike the unfortunate boys. No, sister, cried Wisteria. We must keep control. This seemed to bring Prism back to her senses, and the hall fell silent. I do believe we've got rats, she said. Odie and Joe bolted for the door, but the nunges were too fast for them. They were grabbed by the scruff of their necks and forced to stand in front of Sister Prism. And just what do you think you're doing here? she demanded. Well, you see, sister, Odie began. Yes, she insisted. I'm waiting. We just wanted to watch. Well, it was too much, Odie exclaimed. Especially you, Sister Prism. You were terrific, like Laura Croft, only cool. He glanced up at her through his long, curly eyelashes. It was a look that never failed with his mother or aunties, no matter how naughty he'd been. It didn't work with Sister Prism. She viewed him as she would a tissue sample under a microscope. Then she laughed sarcastically. Odie Rogers, what a charmer you are. If I didn't hate children so much, I'd adopt you. She bent down and grabbed him by the ear. Ow! he yelped. I thought you'd be cool about this, sister. Why are you hassling me? Because, you little creep, she replied. It gives me so much pleasure. She was about to pinch his ear even harder, but luckily for Odie, she suddenly changed her mind. So, you'll find devotions fascinating, do you? Odie nodded vigorously. Absolutely, he exclaimed. They're the best thing I've ever seen, and I've seen some fascinating things in my life. Such as? asked Sister Prism. Well, I've seen my dad out jogging once, only most people thought it was an eclipse. Sister Prism let go of his ear and bent down to whisper in it. And how would you like to join in? Odie gaped at her. What, me? Me joining your devotions? Well, sure. And how about you, Joe? Would you like to learn the sacred arts? Joe stared at her and slowly shook his hand. You wouldn't like to be a grand master with the power of the elements at your command? What was it about this boy she found so irritating? Of course, she continued. You couldn't stand straight away. You'd need to prepare your heart and mind by first dedicating yourself to the divine. She took Joe by the hand and led him towards the jeweled dragon. Just stand here quietly for a moment's contemplation before you bow in homage. Now, close your eyes and breathe deeply. After a few moments, she tried to push Joe forward, but his small frame went rigid. What's the matter with you? The woman snapped. I won't! I won't do it! He cried. It's horrible, and I hate it! Oh, so it can speak, Sister Prism exclaimed. Come on, boy, all you have to do is bow. Sister Wisteria tried to encourage him. There's nothing to be afraid of, Joe, she cooed. It's only an image. Then why bow down to it? Joe reasoned. Because, snarled Sister Prism. Because, well, because, because I say so. Seeing this had no effect on the little boy, she decided to try a subtle approach. Joe, sweetheart, it's been a long day for you. I understand that. And I'm sure you and your little friend want nothing more than to be safely tucked up in a nice warm bed with a lovely mug of cocoa. 
Tomorrow, if you're very, very good, I'll let you join us for breakfast, and then you can watch a nice video. You'd like that, wouldn't you? And all you have to do is this one little itsy-bitsy thing, one tiny little act of devotion. I won't bow down to the dragon, insisted Joe. Then I'll lock you in a cell with no food, no blankets, no windows, until you scream and beg to come out. Only I won't let you. So what is it going to be, Joe? Well? There was no answer. Boy, don't you realize I could break you in two with one chop of my hand? I will not be defied. I don't care, cried Joe. You can do what you like, because you're big and I'm small, but you can't make me do anything, and no matter what you do or how horrid you are, I won't bow down to the dragon. I won't, I won't, not ever. He folded his arms and set his jaw, and Sister Prism knew there'd be no forcing him. Very well, she said, and paused to think for a moment. Seeing as it's your first day, I'm going to be lenient with you. Tomorrow, however, you will come here again. When the clock strikes noon, you and Odie will bow to the divinity, and if you don't, you'll be thrown into the pit. The other nunges gasped. Oh no, not the pit! To a woman, they shuddered at the very thought. Sister Prism raised a hand to silence them. Sisters, we have no choice. If this child willfully and deliberately offends that which we hold dear, we must act. The choice is his. She bent down to push her face into Joe's and hissed angrily. Can't you see I'm trying to be nice? Any nicer and you might have friends, Odie muttered under his breath. What did you say? Prism snapped. I said you just couldn't be any nicer, Sister Prism. Odie replied, his eyes shining with sincerity. Sister Prism began to breathe deeply. I like to think of myself as a reasonable person. Until noon tomorrow, then, Sister Wisteria, escort these, these persons back to bed, and this time make sure they stay there. Having dismissed the assembly, Prism swept imperiously through the hall and left. Hey, Wisteria, what's with the pit? asked Odie. Oh, oh, the pit, the pit, don't even mention it came the reply. Let's just say, I hope you don't end up there, the emphasis being on the word end, if you know what I mean. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. It's just a hole in the ground, right? Odie persisted, trying not to sound scared. Wisteria turned on him, gazed down pityingly. Have you ever heard of Leviathan? She said. After puzzling for a moment, Odie replied, Are they into rap or hip-hop? Only when they returned to the dormitory did either of the boys dare speak. What's Leviathan? asked Joe, trying to keep his voice as casual as possible. By way of an answer, Wisteria merely nodded towards a pile of dusty old books on a shelf in the corner of the room. There's a dictionary there, she said. Why not look it up and have a little nighttime reading? It's the only way to learn. With that, she giggled for no reason in particular and disappeared with a cheery, Night night, boys! As her giggle grew fainter in the corridor outside, Joe and Odie stared at each other, and then they turned their gaze toward the dictionary. Do you really want to find out? asked Joe. Do you? asked Odie. Joe shook his head. Let's sleep on it, eh? suggested Odie. Once in their bleak little beds, they whispered to each other in the dark. What's the big deal anyway? asked Odie. Why won't you kneel to the dragon? That's the funny thing, said Joe. I don't know why. I just couldn't do it. Not even if it meant facing Leviathan, whoever that is? Joe simply couldn't answer. He hoped he would be brave. But then, how would he know just how he would react when his life was at stake? For now, there was only one thing he could do. 
the same thing he'd always done at bedtime. He talked to Mr. Big. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 6. As dawn broke, a glimmer of sunlight bathed the moors in its soft, pale glow, and the earth began to shiver. It was an illusion caused by several clumps of gorse and hawthorn creeping steadily down from the hills. Only the sharpest eye could have detected human figures underneath these bushes, dressed in greens and browns, and wriggling soundlessly towards the babble retreat, where Odie and Joe slept fitfully. At last, the party, some thirty men and women, along with Miles and Alice, reached a hollow where they could hide as they planned their mission. The big challenge was to find a way in. Can't we swim the moat? Someone asked. Doubtful, said Larch. It's not so much a moat as a river, and the current's too strong. Beach nodded. Aye, even the strongest swimmer will be swept away. Maybe we could build a boat or something, suggested Alice. No, same problem, said Larch. It'd be smashed to pieces. But even if we could get across, the walls must be several feet thick. Beach added miserably. The needle-sharp spines from the gorse were pricking him, and he was suffering from lack of sleep. "'That's no problem. We'll climb over the top,' said Laurel. "'After all, we have our ropes.' Beach sighed. "'Look, if you fancy getting cut to ribbons by the razor wire, then you go ahead,' he remarked. "'But don't expect me to follow you. I'm being skinned alive already by this gorse.' "'It's impossible,' Larch groaned. "'We've walked all night for nothing.' "'Well, I'm stumped.' said Roots. Faced with defeat, some of the tree folk started moaning, some about their blisters, some about their aching backs, and some about the lukewarm tea Laurel provided. This was too much for Gordon. Oh, for pity's sake, he cried. What a load of wimps, you're pathetic. That poor wee laddie inside needs our help, and look at us. Come on, guys, where is your spirit? Or have you lost your guts along with your brains? Stung, Beach snapped back at him, no one's backing out of this, he said. But for the life of me, I can't see how we get into the wretched place. Well, mourning won't help, will it, you daft girl's blouse? In response, Beach thrust his mud-caked face into the Scotsman's. Gordon glared back at him, and the pair stood forehead to forehead, daring the other to blink. With all the foliage on their backs, they looked like two particularly angry hedgehogs. Call me a girl's blouse, growled Beach. That's good coming from you, a man in a frock. Yeah, you daft wee plonker, Gordon replied. I'll have you know this kilt was worn by my ancestors at Bannockburn in 1314. Then it's high time you washed it then, isn't it? Now dangerously close to a Glasgow kiss. Fortunately for him, Laurel intervened. This isn't getting us anywhere, she exclaimed. Stop arguing, we need to think. 
Still muttering under his breath, Beach stood back from the fierce glare of his colleague. Now, said Laurel, has anyone any idea how we're going to get into Babel? There was silence as the company tried to come up with a solution. Every so often, someone would say, Oh no! and then lapse into disappointment again on realizing their plan was unworkable. Eventually, it was Alice who spoke. I remember... Yes? The tree people turned and looked at her hopefully. Well, she said, it's just something I learned in history once. It's probably not anything, really. Anything's better than nothing, said Larch. Go on, lass, spill. Well, Alice began, hesitantly, conscious of thirty pairs of eyes boring into her. Well, there was another Babel, an ancient city somewhere in the east. I can't quite remember where exactly. Go on, Alice, urged Laurel. Alice cleared her throat and continued. Well, it had a huge river round it, like this place, and the walls were thick as... as thick as... As Beach's head, growled Gordon, to be greeted with shushing noises all round and a raised fist by Beach. Well, very, very thick, said Alice. Anyway, this king came along with his army and decided to attack the city, and he set siege to it, and then he stopped up the river. The river dried up, you see. This was met by another silence, which made Alice feel uncomfortable, especially as Miles was smirking at her in that irritating way he had. Well, that's what happened. Larcher's gaze changed from one of puzzlement to one of admiration. That's brilliant, she cried. Why, heck, Alice, I think you've cracked it. Right, come on, everybody, there's no time to lose. What do you want us to do? asked Beach. Find as many stones and rocks as possible, said Larch. And then we're going to track all the streams to their sources, and then we're going to divert them away from the river. The rest of her companions shook their heads with confusion. We're going to stop the streams, said Larch. Damn them all, because there'll be no stopping us. Now I know what you may be saying. You can't leave it on a cliffhanger like that. Well, good news. I didn't leave it on a cliffhanger like that. Well, I kind of did. But JC didn't leave it on a cliffhanger like that because you can go to jcbreen.blogspot.com and check out more of her book. Or you can go on to Amazon and Smashwords. The links are down below to actually purchase this book and support JC and what she's doing. Again, a huge thank you to JC for allowing me to read this on the podcast. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. I know you have. So if you did, please just do me a favor and tell somebody about the podcast. That's the best way to, to help the podcast grow and spread the word. I know there's people out there that you know who would love a free audiobook. So tell them about another world. Get them listening. Whatever it takes. Thanks, guys, so much for your support. And we'll be back with another episode of Treasure Island on Sunday. Getting close to the end on that one. And I cannot wait to show you what we're, what's coming up next after Treasure Island. And remember... There's always the option if you want the full free audiobook to just go to anotherworldaudiobooks.wordpress.com slash free. And there you can just put in your email and I will send you the full free audiobook of Treasure Island. So it's just that simple. If you just want the full audiobook right now, you can just go ahead and do that. Thanks guys so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Don't worry, you aren't the only one. You aren't the only business that needs help. You aren't the only person that has a hard time finding the right help at the right price. This is where Business Bloodline becomes your bloodline to temporary and permanent staffing. Business Bloodline specializes in hiring internet workers to creatively solve problems for your business. 
Business Bloodline does all the vetting and only delivers candidates that make sense for your needs and at a cost that you can afford. But 60 seconds isn't enough for me to tell you why hiring through Business Bloodline is safer, cheaper, and less time consuming. We would rather show you. To get more information or a business consultation, visit businessbloodline.com. If the job can be done on a computer, Business Bloodline can find a match. Visit businessbloodline.com and tell them that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get 10% off your first hire. Remember to mention that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get that 10% off. Businessbloodline.com